property. Um, those who have got increases, often they got increases below inflation. Workers are lucky, you know, to have jobs, but they're supporting relatives who have lost wages or have lost jobs. So in essence, all workers are drowning in debt. So the current parameters in the law is that workers can access their retirement funds minus tax if they resign or if they lose the job. Um, and many workers do simply choose to resign in order to cash the pension funds because they can no, long, no longer afford to keep up with the, with the debt payments. Um, and so yes, it resolved the current crisis of that workers' debt levels, but it then leaves a worker with a depleted pension fund and unemployed, and they'll struggle to find another job. This, of course, means those workers in the hit retirement age will, will retire in poverty. And we can see the stats where less than 10% of South Africans can afford to retire. And this obviously puts greater pressure on the fiscus too. So I think, Commissioner, we had a lot of engagements as COSAT with Treasury. We, we, we support the two-part pension regime. We think it's a very progressive regime. And I think the, the fact that there's been positive responses to it from industry too is a, is a good indication that this is finding a right balance. Uh, we think it's going to help financially struggling workers to access some limited part of the pension funds in up to a third without them having to resign. So that's positive. Without them having to deplete the pension funds, that's also positive. We also think, Comrade Chair, that it's going to help actually to incentivize workers to save more, knowing that once a year they could access the savings pot. And that's going to be beneficial to them when they retire. It's going to be beneficial to the industry, to the economy, et cetera. Um, so, Chair, we support the two-part regime. Um, because it enables workers to, to cash out or to cash a part of it. Um, and they can leave the other part in the savings pot. So if they have a, you know, 100,000 Rand in the savings pot and they only need 50,000 Rand, they can take the 50,000 and leave the other balance there for future needs. Um, because currently they don't have that flexibility. Uh, so this is going to help to deplete, avoid depleting pension funds. Um, and of course, the incentive works actually to top up if they want to do so. And I think we do really appreciate treasuries, including our public servants here as well, uh, because again, yes, they may have been paid, but they are in debt. They are supporting relatives who lost wages, and they themselves didn't get increases uh, for some time. <clears throat> so, Chair, kind of our, our three proposed areas um, is that one is that we need to allow workers some immediate relief. Um, workers are really drowning in debt. Um, I'm sure members like Kosatu and Treasury officials are getting daily phone calls from workers asking when can they access part of their pension funds. Um, so workers are really keen on this bill. They're waiting for it desperately and they're waiting for it to come into effect next year so they can get some relief. Um, so the one difficulty is that the bill doesn't provide for immediate relief when the bill comes into effect next year. It just say that you have to save uh, beyond next year and that could take a year, it could take two years, depending how much you need, how much you contribute, et cetera. So we feature that if we don't provide some immediate relief when it comes to effect next year, many workers will then simply give up. They will choose to resign and cash out their existing savings, which are allowed to do so. And this will actually undermine the very progressive objectives of the bill. Um, so we think, Chair, it's critical we should allow workers some limited access to the savings immediately when the bill is enacted. So proposal on this one, Chair, is that we amend the bill to let workers convert existing funds into the savings and preservation pots immediately upon the bill's enactment. And this can then enable immediately from the savings portion of the bill. So a simple kind of opt-in and then a conversion for the existing savings. Um, and then just so you just apply the, the, the new, the new two-part regime immediately. Um, Chair, the other critical one is around, <clears throat> we need for workers to continue to have access to the funds when they lose their jobs. Um, so when workers currently are retrenched, dismissed, resigned, they can access the pensions minus tax. 
Um, this is critical because you know many workers are, are entrenched, 2.2 million in the past two years, but many also are forced to resign uh, because maybe the husband gets a job in Kharteng or the Western Cape and the wife then has to, to quit her job in the Eastern Cape because you can't split the family. Um, and again, so we've got a very high unemployment rate. We lack a comprehensive social security net. Um, the UF relief is temporary. It's often delayed. It's a fraction of what workers earn, and it's not enough to sustain a family or save a home. So when workers lose their homes, they use the pension funds to save their homes, pay off the bond or the car, or simply to continue to feed the families. So the bill is proposing to take away this right to access to your pension funds for future savings beyond March 2023. And this will then mean that a worker coming to the economy next year, they lose a job in five or 10 years, um, they will not have access to the full pension, they might then lose their homes, um, yet they would have savings. So a proposal here is to simply allow workers to continue to have access to the full pension funds minus tax. So that's for both current and future savings um, when they lose their jobs or they're forced to resign. <clears throat> we could link it to, for example, to say, <clears throat> To avoid abuses, you could say, well, workers should provide proof of having lost a job, a retrenchment letter, the UAF payments, or some sort of proof that resignation is due to, to relocation, et cetera. Uh, but the principle is we should still allow workers access to the full pension funds when they lose their jobs. Um, so then the kind of the, the, the other concern we had, or proposal we have, is that workers must be guaranteed some access to the savings. Um, the bill leaves the decision allowing workers access to the savings part. Uh, to the fund trustees. And we understand that's done to accommodate liquidity availability, uh, but this might have an unintended consequence of leaving workers vulnerable to a fund trustees refusing them access to the savings. Um, and we should appreciate that, you know, fund administrators profit from workers' pension funds. There are instances where some boards have very unhealthy relationships with administrators. They're open to kickbacks, to profiteering, etc. And we do fear that such administrators might simply veto allowing workers to exit to the savings pot. Um, and the bill doesn't provide a recourse for workers in this regard. So I propose a chair for this one is in essence that <clears throat> have some provisions to guarantee workers access to the savings pot. <clears throat> we shouldn't leave it solely to the discretion of the pension fund trustees. Um, <clears throat> if there are limited funds available, then you know the bill could set priority criteria, even regulations. Uh, for workers to be prioritized to access the savings. It could be workers who have lost wages, are highly indebted, or have got financial medical emergencies. And these could easily be verified through salary slips, bank statements, credit bureau profile, or medical invoices, et cetera. Um, so in conclusion, Comrade Chair and all members, I think we want to welcome this uh, Revenue Laws Amendment Bill as well. Uh, we want to welcome the two-part regime as a positive step forward to helping workers in, in response to Cosato's call. It's been a very long journey with this committee over the past two and a half years on this issue. Um, and I think it's enjoyed support from across political party ranks. Um, we think the two-part regime will help workers who are struggling to survive, to avoid resignations, to avoid depleting pensions, to incentivize savings. But we think it's critical that honorable members look at addressing the three weaknesses we're highlighting. Uh, one is to allow workers to convert existing savings when the bill is enacted and access immediate relief. Um, second is to ensure workers continue to be able to access the pension when they lose their jobs or are forced to resign. A three is for workers to be guaranteed access to the savings pot and not be at the mercy of fund trustees only. We think if we can amend these three, uh, make these three amendments, it'll be a very critical source of relief to workers in the economy. And so we urge Parliament to expedite these three proposed amendments and to expedite the bill's uh, passage into law by March 2023.
Um, so that's our presentations on the two bills, Comrade Chair, and hopefully I stuck to the time and I didn't gallop too, too fast. But thanks very much, Omar Chair members, for giving us a conversation. Thanks, Chairperson. Thank you so much, um, Matthew. Uh, you were right on time. Can we now give over to the BATA, British American Tobacco? Uh, you have your 15 minutes, which starts now. Um, to you. Yes, uh, good, good morning, uh, Chairperson and members of the committee. My name is Anilisa Mzinyati. I'm from uh, BATSA. Today we're making our submission, uh, from, which is going to, our presentation, which is going to be a, a short summary of our submission that we have made to the committee. Um, and we shall be using the, the 15 minutes. If I may be allowed to uh, co-chair so, so that I can present my slides. You mean co-host? Co-host, sorry, sorry, yes, co-host. <laughs> Thank you. Este bojo, please allow. <laughs> if you may let me know if you can see my slides. Yes, we can. Thank you. You can go ahead. Okay. Um, thank you very much. Um, firstly, uh, colleagues, we would firstly like to say thank you for the opportunity for us to make our submission. Um, and as a starting point, we'd just like to commend National Treasury uh, on the excise rates that was provided for this year, which was announced in the budget speech of the 5.5% increase. Uh, this really, uh, this rate increase has gone some way in um, offering some sort of relief uh, for our industry and has given us the ability or the duty paid uh, industry, the ability to be able to compete against the illicit trade. Um, despite this, though, uh, we must note that uh, even though the 5.5% 5 5 has given us some sort of uh, relief in being able to compete at a price level, uh, it means that at the end, what we forecast is that at the end of the financial year, we anticipate that only um, a third of the industry would already be taxed, and that was what will be collected. Uh, from the industry, and there would still be a large portion of the market which is um, still untaxed and which would not still be uh, uncollected. We note also that the uh, South African Revenue Services has been very active in the last couple of weeks um, in terms of dealing with those who are non-compliant with, uh, um, with excise taxes in, in that they are uh, collecting uh, backdated taxes. And we, we encourage them to continue because um, it will go some way in terms of being able to deal with the illicit trade issues that we're, that we're facing. The 5.5% increase that we received is in very much in line in terms of the excise policy that National Treasury has, um, um, has held in place for a number of years in that it has been just a, a one percentage point above the 4.5% inflation. Um, and we and we are really in really in uh, uh, commending the national treasury for sticking to policy, and we encourage them to continue to be able to um, to look at the state of the industry and seek to uh, um, enable competition in the industry by sticking to the policy. 
but despite uh, all the good work that's been done thus far, the reality is that we're still left with a market which is very much dealing with many of the problems of um, the illicit trade and what has happened over the last couple of years. As it stands already um, in the market, you can readily find a product um, still selling in, in the market for as low as 70 rands, a pack of cigarettes selling for as low as 70 rands, which is well below the minimum collectible taxes. So well below what the excise rates um, plus VAT should, uh, should, should be collected at the point of manufacturing. This means that the the legal industry or those that are in the duty paid uh, uh, part of the market continue to struggle to um, to compete against these low prices, considering that the cheapest uh, duty paid product is only uh, sitting at 32 rands and the delta of 25 rands is quite a big stretch for consumers to be able to afford. The second part of what is still happening in the market is that over the years, since uh, National Treasury has been passing on uh, excise increases to the to the delta to the sum of about eighteen point nine percentage points, if you look at the two markets that are in play in the market, so the formal sector and then the informal sector, you will recognize in the chart that's in the middle. Uh, uh, so, sorry, so you'll recognize in the in the uh, in the chart that's in the middle that you have. A, uh, a formal market which is passing on uh, the excise rates um, to consumers. So, so it's fully transferring the value that is being collected uh, versus the, an informal market which is not uh, passing on the excise view. What this means then is, is that the market is actually sitting at a, at a bit of a structural change versus previous years in that uh, you're seeing a large transfer of volume moving from the formal markets to the informal market. Uh, but more importantly, and probably the crux of the matter is that PAC as a skew is no longer as relevant um, in terms of a consumption skew. So consumers are looking to find value and then looking at buying single sticks as a result of that. So all of this culminated when you look at it all together. Uh, it means that as an anchor point, there's, some, there's a lot of disruption in terms of how the excise uh, uh, policy is currently structured. So you firstly, you have a pack uh, view, which is no longer as relevant, meaning that uh, when we set excise rates on pack, it, you're only counting a certain portion of the market. But probably more important uh, than the pack uh, skew is also the, the, the choice of which brand or which price points um, that we need to tax when we're setting our tax rates. So currently at the stand, we're using a most popular product consumed uh, a view in terms of structuring excise, excise policy. And that brand that, we, that, that is being used as the anchor point is Peter Stuyvesant. Um, and as we look at the charts here, and in recent research that we've conducted, Peter Stuyvesant as a as a as an anchor brand is no longer as strong as it was a couple of years ago. So if you were to cast back um, uh, six seven years ago, Peter Stuyvesant would probably account for almost a quarter of total volumes in the market. But as it stands right now, it, it, it accounts for only thirteen percent of the market. Yet, if we use Peter Stuyvesant's price point as a um, as an anchor point in terms of uh, what how we set policy, Peter Stuyvesant, as it retails today, retails for 44 rands a pack. 
Um, and 44 rands a pack only represents 1% of the total pricing landscape, which means that we are not pricing, we're not setting policy on the right pack um, or the right product. In reality, where the market is actually sitting is uh, at, at a popular price point of 20 rands, which is where the bulk of the consumption is taking place from a consumption point of view. As a result, I mean, this is obviously consistent with the market structure changes that we're seeing in the market, where pack, pack choices are, um, are, are very different to where they were a couple of years ago. Um, consumers only buying stick and Peter Stags is largely played in the, in the pack market. So therefore, with all the fragmentation that's happened as a result of illicit trade entering into the, into the market, um, it's no longer as, as dominant. So taking a brand-centric approach when we're making uh, policy decisions needs to be reviewed, given the fact that the market is really showing us that we need to move to a different excise structure in terms of how we set policy. As a result, um, we make the following policy recommendations. Um, the first one is that we should, um, we encourage the National Treasury to start looking at uh, reviewing the current uh, anchor point of how excise policy is set and to move to a weighted average price point um, uh, uh, calculation, which is in line with global standards in terms of how excise policy is being set. The second uh, point that we raise for, uh, for consideration is that the introduction of a minimum retail price. So if the market is sitting quite low at 20 rands, which is well below the tax rates, which defeats the ends of excise policy to, to be, uh, to be um, uh, quite this affordable, we make the proposal that we introduce a minimum retail price set at 32 rands um, through primary legislation so that we allow for all uh, participants in the markets to be able to debate what the value is. But the main point of introducing a minimum uh, retail price would be firstly to prove as a, as a signal for consumers in terms of what is a legal and what is an illegal product or what is an, a duty not paid product so that they have visibility of what it is that they're consuming and what they're purchasing. The second thing, the second support uh, structure that will be um, then be used is for law enforcement uh, so that they can also have a reference, pro reference price um, that they can use when they're um, enforcing against illicit activity in the markets. The third one, and obviously is the one that is probably the most um, um, important given what we are learning of late in terms of what has happened um, in the last couple of years in terms of non-compliance is that of introducing further uh, monitoring of the production and distribution uh, processes, meaning the introduction of a track and trace system, which is uh, to be uh, aligned with other countries within the customs union. So we're making sure that we're catching the full extent and the full production cycle um, within the customs union. And as we look towards the uh, 2023 and 2024 um, budget cycle and budget proposals and the planning, we encourage the National Treasury to continue taking a balanced excise rate approach in that sticking to policy so that we can um, give the duty paid industry the opportunity to capture the volume um, and the value that is available in the market as we deal with illicit trade so that we can then start returning back to an industry which is more 
uh, aligned to how the national treasury is viewed and how the participants in the in the in the industry would like to um, to compete. Um, that that that's the summary of my slides, and I thank you for the opportunity. Thank you very much. Thank you so so much. Uh, I I think I want to also thank the chairperson for extending the ten minutes to to fifteen minutes because we would be in trouble if we were working on ten minutes. Now we off to. Rajbanzi, your 15 minutes, over to you. Good morning, ma'am. Ms. Rajbanzi has just called to say he's, she's withdrawing from the hearings, so she won't be presenting. Hello? Okay, that's perfect. Um, it's okay. We accept that. Um, this is an opportunity now for committee members to raise their own comments and probably seek clarity. Um, honorable members, um, we, 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 have, we have at least uh, sufficient time to do that. Okay, can I see the hands? Teboho, can you help with that? Yes, ma'am. Uh, okay. I am not seeing any hands so far. I also don't see any hands on my side. Okay. Can we then proceed? Uh, honorable members, um, uh, on the agenda, uh, we still have the SA Institute of Chartered Accountants. Uh, they also ha have to take that 15 minutes and then we proceed. Over to you, Chartered Accountants. Thank you. Thank you very much and good morning to everybody. Um, if I can ask if I can be a, a co-host so I can share my presentation. So you'll be assisted on that. Thank you. I've, I have made you co-host, Cheryl. Thank you. I'll try. It said I'm not yet, but let me try again. There we go. Thank you very much. Quickly share. Can you see my slides? Not yet. Yeah, okay. we can we can see. It yes, now. they are on. Thank you. Fantastic. Thank you very much and good morning to everybody. It's uh, once again a pleasure to, to be here with you and we appreciate the time to, to listen to us. Um, I'm going to split my presentation as we usually do into two parts, which is the policy matters um, and then the technical amendments. And I'm only going to be talking about the uh, Revenue Laws Amendment Bill and the uh, two-part retirement system. Um, so a big concern here is that, uh, and I'll, I'll mention the, the policy issues just now, but it's quite interesting that the National Treasury has decided to call it the two-pot system, uh, because in actual fact, we have three pots. We have the vested pot, uh, we have the retirement pot, and then we have the savings pot. So it's, it's quite interesting. But if we look at the, the policy concerns, I think the first concern that is, is of issue is the date of implementation, uh, which is currently set as the 1st of March 2023. And we really want to thank National Treasury for um, hosting the workshops uh, last week and, and yesterday. 
Um, and yesterday's uh, workshop dealt with the retirement system. And we do appreciate it. We got a lot of insight on, on where the thinking's going. We also got a lot of insight on, on the concerns. And one of the concerns was obviously by industry is that this implementation date is not <laughs> going to work or is not feasible, considering, for instance, that the defined benefit funds do not seem to fit into the current legislation. And that's just one example. And I'll touch on a few later. Um, so, so the concern is, is that, you know, for, for industry to change their systems um, on draft policy at this stage is quite problematic. Um, and it is pushing it if there's still a lot of consultations that need to happen. And, and the defined benefit funds, which includes the GPF, um, had serious concerns that were raised yesterday. So we'll leave this up to industry. I think the industry and National Treasury to, to discuss. Uh, we, we recognize the concerns of the individuals, as, as Kusatu mentioned. However, we do once again note that, you know, the retirement system cannot cater for every single personal crisis um, if National Treasury wants this policy to work. So it, it is a serious balancing act um, that they have on their hands and, and we wish them good luck with that. But, but it's really an important thing for a lot of people that this does happen um, on the 1st of March, 2023. Um, the next issue that we have is the current legislation is unclear on how the investments are going to be allocated. So currently the funds uh, have an amount that they can invest but we now have a three-pot system. So the question is, how will this investment be allocated across those three-pot systems? And it's, it's pretty similar. The same concern goes with the growth allocations on those particular uh, investments. Will it be allocated to the different pots in what percentage? So currently there's uncertainty about that and certainty is definitely needed in that regard because it will affect how the, the underlying assets are invested of the funds. The next one is the housing loans um, and divorce policy. Currently, the law is silent on that, and National Treasury indicated that the reason for this specifically on the housing loans, et cetera, is because it's catered for in the Pension Funds Act. Um, now, our feeling is, and listening to the comments that were highlighted yesterday by, by various parties, is that um, if, if the housing loans are provided, which they currently are, how is it going to be split between the different pots? And if it is going to be split between the different pots, how will the um, will, will the individual have a choice on which pot they can allocate this, this payment um, or will they be forced into a certain treatment? So this is currently unclear. The other question is um, what will happen on future lending if individuals want to access home loans? but now have zero interest in a vested pot, retirement pot and savings pot. How will they get access to this loan funding if they cannot access, um, they, they don't, or don't have any retirement pots or if they're restricted from using certain retirement pots? Um, the other concern is that what happens on default? So if the individuals can no longer pay the amount that they owe the bank, um, how will the bank get that money? For instance, if it's from the retirement pot, will they be able to withdraw that money considering that the retirement pot actually has to be paid out in annuities, not in a, in a full lump sum? Um, so how will that actually happen? And, and, and a further concern, of course, is the um, that this could create a potential loophole where individuals would want to actually, um, you know, uh, access the cash savings earlier than what they should be on retirement, et cetera. So it is a bit of a concern there. And, and a pretty similar concern applies on the divorce policy. 
that, um, you know, again, a loophole could be created if the cash will be allowed to be taken out uh, before retirement, etc. But again, same concerns here on the allocation. How will the dis this divorce payment be allocated to the different funds, uh, to the different pots, if at all, you know, and um, how will the will the, the individual have a choice from which pot this divorce order payment needs to be made out of? And a big question that, that still needs to be answered and that isn't currently catered for in the legislation is how will the spouse actually be taxed on this amount that the, the ex-spouse uh, on the amount that, that the person receives? Um, currently, that amount can be withdrawn in cash. Um, and if that is the case, again, we, you know, there is potential loopholes for an increase in the number of um, divorces. But, but how will this be taxed? And this isn't catered for currently in, in the, the draft legislation. And, and will they have to invest it in the same pots? Can they, um, you know, does it have to be in the same percentage according to the percentage pot that they receive the money from, from the other spouse? Um, so all of this is unclear and clarity is sought on that. Uh, a last point to mention on this is the the costs. Um, industry has been saying that this, you know, all these changes, et cetera, will increase their costs. And it is a concern that we're not sure how much this is going to cost and how much of these costs will be passed on to the consumer, to the members of the fund. And will this erode the actual potential savings they're trying to, you know, to keep in their funds? And we'll talk about a recommendation um, on that just now. Sorry, I've missed out one thing. I, I, I went one ahead of myself, um, and that is the pre-retirement withdrawals. And the question is, how will this be taxed? Now, the current system, um, well, the, the proposed system is that on the savings portion, you are allowed one withdrawal in a 12-month period. And the question is, how will that amount actually be taxed? Now, according to the legislation, it will be included in your gross income. But we are unsure whether this will be taxed in terms of the pay-as-you-earn cycle, uh, where the employer will have to get a, a directive from SARS, or will it be taxed at year-end on assessment, uh, or should we be using the tax tables? How will this amount, this withdrawal, actually be, be taxed? Um, so there, there's no connection currently between the legislation and the, the savings pot withdrawals um, and the fourth schedule. Um, and again, we could potentially have a problem like we did with the widows where, you know, an amount, a lower amount is withheld at the beginning or when this withdrawal takes place. And yet on assessment, there is a large outstanding amount of tax that needs to be paid. And, and the opposite concern could also happen. Um, so, again, there is there is clarity here. Um, we, we need to know exactly how this is going to work. So our recommendations are is on the effective date is, you know, it's it's to push this through and to. To make it happen is important. We recognize that and, and we'll leave that up to the industry and SARS um, to the National Treasury to, to resolve. But, but for us, the sooner the better for the, the individuals that really need this money, um, particularly taking into account the COVID impact. Um, on the investments, we need clarity on how this investment portion, when it is returned, how is that going to be allocated between the different pots? And the same applies to the growth portion on the actual investment. Now, on the housing and divorce. Uh, policies. Again, clarity is needed, but specifically in the hands of the spouses, how will that spouse be taxed on the amount that they've actually received? And on the uh, employees tax, the savings withdrawal, the pre-retirement withdrawals, 
how will this be taxed? You know, does the employees tax legislation need to be amended? National Treasury, we do note, uh, mentioned in the meetings yesterday that they will provide clarity on this um, in their response to Parliament. So we do appreciate that. And we look forward to, to seeing what uh, they, they have decided, because currently it is unclear, like I said, either through the directive system or um, tax by SARS at, on year, at the end of the year. But there are concerns with both of those. And, and also applying for directives might be problematic, not only for the individuals, but the funds and SARS as well. So perhaps, you know, flat rate tax might be considered with the top up at year end. Um, suggestions were made yesterday, and we hope National Treasury uh, takes those into account. On the cost side, we do suggest that the Standing Committee of Finance and National Treasury monitor the costs that the funds are having to incur because of these changes and, and, and see how much of this cost has been transferred onto the consumer and that you know, it isn't excessive in relation to what is actually being, being charged for. Um, I'm not going to go into the technical changes that we mentioned as, as discussed in yesterday's meeting with National Treasury before we can actually even discuss any further technical changes. I think policy certainty is needed and, and we, we look forward to National Treasury's response uh, to Parliament um, on our submissions made, the industry submissions made um, and the comments made today. And then we can, can look further at the, the technical changes. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so, so much. Um, that saves us a few minutes and um, a nice presentation that you have there. And I appreciate uh, that the stakeholders understand as well that um, because of the different interests, Treasury has a difficult decision to make because then they have to try and balance the views of all the people so that um, nobody feels like they are left out. Thank you so much uh, for, your, for, your, for your presentation. Now we are at Asisa. Asisa, can you take your 15 minutes or less? Thank you. Over to you. Ebuho is a sister on the platform. Can we check? Yes, ma'am, they are on the platform. Okay. It's Rose, Rosemary. Can you, Rosemary. Can, can you hear me? Sure, I can yeah. hear you now. Thank okay. You. Thank you very much. Yeah, you uh, may I please share my screen? You're welcome. I apologize, I'm not familiar with Zoom. Are you able to see my screen? Not yet, ma'am. Okay, according to this, I should be sharing my screen. Are you still not able to see it? Yes. So can you not see it? If you can't see it, don't worry. I will just speak to my slides. 
Are you not able to see it? No, we can't see anything from our side. You can proceed. Okay. Sorry about that. I will, I will simply speak to my slides. Um, first of all, just to, for those um, members of parliament, of the committee who do not know who ASISA is, first of all, my name is Rosemary Lightbody. Um, I'm representing ASISA and we represent our members who are retirement fund administrators, investment managers, long-term insurers, collecting investment schemes, and these are all service providers to retirement funds. So our members understand the administrative systems and other business processes that the introduction of the two-pot system will require. Um, they interact regularly with retirement fund members, so they do understand the difficulties that these members often face. Um, because members do contact them directly, and of course they have uh, contact with employers. So I'd like to say upfront that the ASISA members strongly support the introduction of the two-pot system. Um, it is one of our members, in fact, did an exercise, and it they their research. It's one of the large members who uh, do administration of retirement funds. And according to their data, if a new member were to enter the system, um, into the two-pot system, <clears throat> they would accumulate, by the time they reach their retirement date, more than double the amount um, for their retirement than they would under the current system. And that's on the basis that there is a withdrawal every single year of the full savings pot. So this, uh, the two-pot system as introduced will make a substantial difference to the retirement provision of fund members in the future. It will take a while for it to be um, fully in place, but nevertheless, and yes, there will be a lot of costs and a lot of effort to get it there, but it is felt that all of this will be worth it because of the benefits that will be felt across society, members of retirement funds in the future. Um, we support the, um, the legislation, which makes it clear that there's retention of vested rights, existing rights are not being removed through this uh, system. Um, we also support no transfers from existing benefits to the savings pot. So that is where we differ with some of the other presenters. Um, we, we support the continued tax deductibility of contributions, withdrawals being taxed at marginal rates, um, and we, we support the flexibility of contributions being made to the savings pot, but at the fund's discretion. Flexibility generally, it's very important that the rules that govern the fund, the legislation, are not overly prescriptive, so that fund boards can deal with the two-pot system appropriately for their funds and their specific membership. Um, however, we would caution that unnecessary complexity really does need to be avoided because it is complex to introduce. We have to try to keep it as simple as possible to avoid fund members being confused because confusion breeds distrust of the system. It would also, from a practical point of view, cause complications for SARS administrative processes and definitely additional cost for administrators. And it's unavoidable 
that much of those costs will get passed on to funds and their members without adding clear benefits. So what we're saying is that we need to keep it as simple as possible in order to keep costs and charges down. Um, our concerns are most definitely the implementation date. Um, insofar as the implementation date is concerned, we understand and we appreciate that Treasury is anxious to get the system in place. So are CISA members. But before implementation date, legislation, including amendments to the Pension Funds Act, must be consulted on, redrafted, and progressed through the parliamentary process and then promulgated. The funds administrator capability has to be assessed, systems have to be specified, and business rules developed. Now, this cannot be done on the basis of draft legislation, as I will elaborate um, just now. Retirement fund boards need to meet. They need to take decisions on contributions to be made to the savings pot, the allocation of costs and charges and various other variables. Rule amendments have to be drafted. Rule amendments have to be approved by the FECA. So every single fund is going to have to have rules amended and those approvals need to go through the FECA. The systems and business processes need to be built and they need to be tested. Systems need to work. Reports and member statements have to be revised. Savings withdrawal forms have to be designed. Online member tools updated. And very importantly, staff and intermediaries have to be educated and trained and effective communication and disclosures to members have to take place. Members are the most important people in this entire system and they need to fully understand what the future is going to mean for them and how it's going to be rolled out. There mustn't be panic, confusion and distrust. And in order for that to happen, time, you need to have time to get everything right, get everything straight, running smoothly, and members to understand what is going on. SARS needs to be well prepared. They too will need to have systems developments. And we are saying that at least 18 months from the date of final gazetting of the final legislation will be required before implementation. The current legislation has a lot of issues, the draft, that need to be resolved. Um, seemingly small changes, even when it appears to be resolved, small changes and tweaks can have big impacts. So all work that is done needs to be based on the final, not the draft legislation. If you have to do a whole lot of rework because there were uh, last minute tweaks to legislation, up go the costs again. So we're saying that the 1st of March, 2023 is simply not feasible. So that is one of the big concerns that ASISA members have. They want the system, but they want to be in a position to do it properly. The second issue is the conceptualization of the two-part system. There seems to be a little bit of confusion around how the two-pot system is being viewed. We think it's potentially, it's because of the drafting. The drafting of the bill seems to view the various pots as being entirely distinct, hard-coded pots, 
But we believe, and in, um, certainly it, it's been clear from in, in discussions with Treasury, such as the uh, very good public uh, meetings that Treasury gave yesterday, the POTS are simply descriptions of notional portions of a member's total retirement provision in a fund. So we feel that the terminology needs to reflect that uh, very carefully. It's not a matter of you're going to necessarily have these distinct POTS in the system. Yes, you could have um, one administrator deciding that they would administer it that way because that their system lends itself to that and other may do it differently, but it's, it's not necessary to start making rules and laws around what investments must go into which pot, et cetera, et cetera, because these are in fact one account for the member with different components in it. So this to us sounds just like a sort of conceptual idea or perhaps a, a semantics but we really do feel that it's very important for terminology to communicate and for correctly, the correct message, and for the law to make it absolutely clear that you cannot, for argument's sake, have one of the pots being transferred during a membership of a fund that you've now got your savings pot being transferred into a separate fund altogether, and you've land up with all of the pots in different places. The pots cannot be split up. They are simply components of one retirement account within a fund. And we don't feel that the legislation makes that clear. The legislation as currently drafted seems to suggest that the pots can be split up and we feel that that's wrong. And um, we, we, we believe, we hope that National Treasury will make some amendments to make it clear. Um, sorry, I'm just looking. One of the things that we are also particularly concerned about, and this is one of the technical issues in the bill, and that relates to contributions that are in excess of the tax deductible limit. At the moment, the Income Tax Act provides that the maximum annual tax deduction for retirement fund contributions is 27.5% of the greater of taxable income or remuneration with a cap of 350,000 Rand. Now, amounts over this limit are not discouraged. You're not, you're not banned from making additional retirement savings, which is good. And these amounts are simply rolled over and are deductible the following tax year. If they are never utilized as a deduction, then that amount is taken as tax-free in retirement. But it seems that the bill is looking to change the way this is going to operate in the two-pot system to the extent that all excess contributions now will have to be credited to the retirement pot. If they're not used prior to retirement, then um, they can only be available as a deduction against the annuity, the pension taken at retirement. So basically, we are, unfortunately, this provision in the bill is not going to be po possible to administer. In order to administer this, taxable income 
will have to be known at the time that the contributions are received to enable um, a proper division between savings pot and retirement pot. Um, whether you have contributed more than the maximum is not known to the administrator of the particular fund that is receiving those contributions because you could be a member of another fund or more than one other fund, and that won't be known to this particular administrator. Also, that 350,000 rand cap means that you have to know the total rand value that is being contributed to all of the other funds of which you are a member. Taxable income includes taxable gains, rental and investment income, and it also takes into account exemptions and deductions. All of this information is not known to the administrator. It's only known to the actual member themselves and to SARS at the end of the tax year. It's only known on assessment. So the question is, is it expected that on SARS assessment and notification, administrators must retrospectively reallocate contributions across savings and retirement pots? It's not practical to do that. You can't unscramble that. Um, if you have already invested into the various pots, you can't now pull out of one and transfer to another. It, it simply isn't practical. It's not reasonable. It's not possible. So this is a provision in the bill. It's a technical provision um, and it cannot be, it simply isn't possible to, to, to administer it. So it's a big concern that, and we do hope that Treasury will take our uh, submissions in this regard into account because it's not going to be possible to comply to the legislation if it goes forward as it currently is in the bill. The next big issue is defined benefit funds. It appears that the legislation is not taking defined benefit funds into account. Um, defined contribution funds, there isn't that much. It's pretty simple to implement the two-part system for defined contribution funds. You simply take the contributions, you separate them between um, the two pots, and there you go. The contributions and the investment return minus the fees, that's the member's benefit at any point in time in the two pots. However, defined benefit funds don't operate like this. Defined benefit funds don't take contributions, add them up and see how much is, 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 is now in the pot at that point in time for the member. The member's benefits are not directly dependent on the contributions received. They're dependent on the retirement benefit promise that the fund rules made, and that's based on years of service and the salary earned at the retirement date. The fund valuator has to ensure that the total contributions that are made to the fund are enough, they're sufficient to meet the promise. If they're not, the employer may in fact be required to pay an extra amount into the fund to put it in a financial position to meet the member's reasonable benefit expectations. The defined benefit fund cannot simply reallocate contributions so that one third is fully accessible to members on an annual basis. This could seriously jeopardize the financial soundness of the fund. 
So the Income Tax Act needs to accommodate this. It needs consideration needs to be carefully given to how defined benefit funds, such as the GEPF, can, um, can deal effectively with the two-pot system. The drafting could somehow focus on one-third of the benefit constituting the savings pot. But we need to be very, very careful in looking at proposals draft, for drafting around these defined benefit funds to make sure that they get it right and that there are no unintended consequences potentially in the drafting. So um, that to us was an omission. We didn't see anything in the draft bill uh, in order to accommodate defined benefit funds. The current drafting cannot accommodate defined benefit funds. Another big issue is that amendments to the Pension Funds Act are also going to be required. Not only the Income Tax Act, the Pension Fund Act will need to deal with, as has already by, uh, been, been covered by the previous pre presenter, non-member divorce spouses, maintenance orders, housing loans, and other deductions that are provided for in the Pension Funds Act under 37D. We're going to need amendments to the Pensions Fund Act that will have to dovetail with amendments to the Income Tax Act. And we feel that all of these legislative amendments across all applicable legislation needs to be gazetted so we can check that they dovetail, that they hang together, and that proper legal provision has been made for implementation of the two-pot system. In addition, there are a few drafting, or quite a few drafting proposals for clarity and for certainty that ASISA members have made, and they've been set out in a letter and a detailed comment on the technical provisions of the bill. Um, they have been sent both to National Treasury and also to this committee for your kind consideration. So in conclusion, I would like to just reiterate on behalf of ASISA members, the two-pot proposals introduce significant positive change to the retirement system in South Africa. ASISA members definitely support the broad principles and aims of the system. But our reservations are the, current, the, the income tax proposed amendments, while they are a, a, an excellent start, they definitely need more work. The Pension Funds Act needs amendment. Once all of these legislative amendments are gazetted, much work will be required by funds and administrators, and we do not support rushed implementation of the system. The huge risk here is error, confusion, and extremely unfair outcomes for retirement fund members who need to be in a position to make informed, timeless decisions about their retirement funds. They need to understand what is going on so that they are comfortable to make informed decisions for their retirement funds and for their retirement planning in general. So thank you very much for the opportunity and the time to present. I apologize that I was not able to um, show you my slides, but they have been sent to, through to the parliamentary secretary, so they will be in your pack. Thank you. Thank you so much, Sisa. Uh, don't worry, we were able to access your, your presentation. The secretariat in the committee, your beauties and tibokos were able to assist us to access the presentation.
So yeah, we find that. Thank you so much um, for your views expressed here and sent also to the committee. And now we have once again come to that point where we seek a, a members input in terms of uh, clarities, comments or questions. Um, I see the hand of Honorable George so far. Honorable George, you can take the floor. Thank you. Over to you. Thank you very much, Chairperson. I'm going to leave my video off because of connectivity issues. Um, thanks for the presentations. Um, I just want to ask a CISA. Um, yeah, I agree that um, the defined benefit funds are a lot more complicated than defined contributions um, in this instance. So a lot of work still needs to be done on that. Listening to your presentation, it certainly sounds as if your members are supportive of the compulsory preservation um, aspect um, of it, um, but that there does seem to be quite a lot of concern around some technical issues and then implementation, and also an understanding of pension fund members on how it would all work, because it isn't, it isn't simple, it never will be. Are you saying that, I mean, we are now in August, well, we're already in September, actually, yeah. So we're quite far already into the year, and March next year is very soon. And given that administration doesn't move exceptionally quickly, the systems need to change, etc. Are you saying that the industry would not be ready uh, by the 1st of March for implementation and that a lot more work would be required? Um, I just wanted to get clarity on that. Thank you. Um, thank you. Um, or, or okay, you can, you can do it. We can deal with the question. We'll come. We'll, we'll come to the other members after that. Thank you. Thank your pardon. Thank you. We'll come to the other members after your response. Oh, I beg your pardon. So I may answer now. Thank you very much, um, the Honourable George. I. My answer is no. Our members will not be ready by the first of March. They can, if the legislation comes in with effect on the 1st of March, they will obviously do their best, but we, do, but we expect a poor outcome, a very poor outcome. Are you, are you true with your response? Yes. Um, okay. I, I, think, um, I think that that covers the honorable member's question. He, mm -hmm, he, okay. he wanted to know, would we be ready? And the answer quite frankly is no. Mm -hmm. No, we would not okay. be ready. Okay. Thanks. Thanks so with much. The best, with the best will in the world, we would not be ready. <laughs> okay. No, thank you for the response. Um, Maybe I should just check with Kosatu whether there is a, a, a plan that they want to present in terms of the, the, the fuel tax, 
where I think the presentation uh, talks to issues of the fuel challenges. However, that there is little that can be done in terms of that. However, there can be something that can be done around fuel taxation. So if they can just elaborate a bit as to what their expectation or what their uh, proposal is around that. Thank you, Kosatu. Okay. Um, yeah, no, thanks very much, Chair. I mean, so look, I think maybe the, the, the premise is that um, the fuel price is at its highest level in years. It's at about 22 rand a litre for, for fuel, 25 rand a litre for, for diesel. Um, there's been a huge increase since last year. Um, so I think for us maybe it's about, well, and obviously it has a huge impact upon workers. I mean, just to give you one example, Chair, is that the minimum wage is 23 rand 19 cents an hour. Um, and then a litre of petrol is equal to that. A litre of diesel is more than that. So, and I've seen, I think, all sectors of the economy struggling. I think we've seen CPI, you know, pushing past 7.4%. The repo rate hikes have been very significant and might not have even ended yet. So I think for us, what, what can we do? I mean, because obviously we can't address the international oil price volatility, and that is always going to be there. But we think that, you know, the fact that 32% of the fuel price, you know, the 22 rand or 25 rand a litre um, is taxes, that's something we can control. Um, and, you know, I think there was a recognition of that by the previous Minister of Energy, Jeff Hadebe, um, the current ministers of Comrade Gwedi Mantashe and Inok Rungwana, that's something that should be done. Um, we think the, the relief they gave during April until August was quite positive, you know, the one run 50 a litre. But we had hoped to hear from them what are we doing beyond that, because the fuel price is still very, very significant. Um, 32% is just too much. We should be looking at how can we reduce it. The, the question members will ask correctly is that, okay, so if you reduce the fuel taxes, what do you do to fill the hole in the budget? Um, we think a simple conversation should be had with the Commission of SARS, um, Kisvetter, to say if we can reduce the fuel tax, um, you know, from 32% to 25%, for example, what can you do in SARS to help fill that gap in terms of lost revenue? <clears throat> we think there is significant space, Chair, because we've got a tax compliance rate of about 60%. Um, if we can simply have a plan over the next two years to increase that to 65%, for example, that's an extra 100 billion rand uh, per annum that we would be collecting. And then how would SARS achieve that? Um, well, we just need to simply give them additional resources. They can tell us how much they do need, but I think it's a fairly small amount in the broader scheme of things to employ additional staff, to invest in additional capacity to go after tax evaders, customs evasion. So that's the one thing. Chair, on the, on the fuel levy, um, which is part of those, that 32% basket, um, that's basically being used to subsidize the road accident fund. Uh, and you've seen above inflation increase in the fuel levy to help the RAF, which is a cesspool of maladministration, profiteering and chaos. Um, it has liabilities of about 400 billion rand. And the consequence is that um, road accident victims um, wait years to receive the money as due to them. Um, road accident victims do get the money. Often huge chunks of it go to road accident lawyers who unashamedly profiteer at their expense. And the Department of Transport had tabled very good bills, the RAF bill and the, the RABS bill, which is meant to overhaul, replace the RAF, um, which would have removed the lawyers from the equation. It would have directed the money to be received to the victim claimants, would have put in place a, a similar income uh, cap that the UIF places, so that money go, is directed towards the poor, not towards the rich. Those bills have been rejected by the Portfolio Committee on Transport. We've seen no action by NDOT 
afterwards. So we think that should also come back to Parliament, ideally by end of this year, so we can begin a, a roadmap for RAF to be placed on a sustainable trajectory. So I think those are two things which can help reduce the fuel price uh, on board share. Um, I think other things, obviously, is a more holistic, medium-term, longer interventions for some, actually also short-term, is about public transport, fixing it. So getting all the metro rail lines up and operational, because that takes care of 10 million commuters in our cities um, to shield them from, from fuel inflation, um, to get transit fully operational so you can move agricultural goods to the trains off of trucks. It does require compensation, honorable chair, for business also to begin to shift um, from, from road to rail because those can help insulate consumer goods from, from inflation. Um, and then, of course, the other thing, honorable chair, is that uh, Minister Gordon Gwanet indicated by the MTBPS next month, there would be some announcements on a debt relief package for, for ESCOM. We hope that can happen. Uh, because I also help to reduce ESCOM's need for double digit, you know, 32% tariff hikes, if we can cut the debt at least by half, um, because those are two major causes of inflation shares. So some of it is on the fuel taxes, but some of it is supplementary and kind of additional side interventions, Chair. But I think the point is, Chair, that we all recognize something needs to be done. Governors made commitments to do so. We need to see some sort of action uh, being put in place to really help grow the economy. Uh, thanks, thanks for Honorable Chairperson. Thank you. Thank you, uh, Matthew, for that response. Um, honorable members, I just wish to inform the committee that um, some of the stakeholders that haven't uh, presented here today have had an apology or apologies submitted. Uh, BASA, for example, has a uh, indicated that they will attend the public hearings for Talib and Tileb tomorrow. That's where they'll make their submissions. So just wanted to indicate that um, no stakeholder has been left outside. Um, we have now come to the end of our interaction. And um, in terms of, we want to thank everybody who has come in and made presentations. We also want to uh, apologize for the chairperson who had to dash for an emergency. That's why you saw me coming up in, instead of him. Uh, we want to thank uh, the stakeholders and thanks also to the officials of parliament. We want to thank the, the officials from treasury who are here listening and we're hoping for, for for answers, we will we will we will have answers. Is it Friday, Teboho? Any announcements on tomorrow and the day of the responses from Treasury, Teboho? Sorry about that, ma'am. So tomorrow the present uh, uh, presentations. Uh, Oral submissions will be on the Talab and Tilep. Can you hear me, ma'am? I can hear you. I can hear yes. you. And I just wanted to check, do we already have a date for responses from Treasury regarding the submissions today? Yes, we do have a date, but I don't, I don't have uh, the program now, now in front of me. 
So, so no, may okay. I assist, please? It's on the 20th of September, so that will be next week, Tuesday. Yeah, okay. Thank you so much, 20th of September. So the stakeholders must be ready to, to, to also um, log in and hear the responses from Treasury. Thank you so much. I hope I have thanked everybody who has made an effort to be part of this meeting. May we now kindly adjourn until we have our next meeting tomorrow and next week. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, Chair. Thank you, Chair. Thank you, thank you, Magazai. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.